This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, man. Fridays with TK. This is really awkward. TK is physically standing next to me right now. Now, I know given some of your beliefs, our listeners might be like, really? Or is he? are you metaphorically occupying the same metaphysical space? No, I, TK is literally in my home right now. We're in studio. We are live in the beehive, and it's getting really dangerous right about now. <laughs> so um, this has got to be quick because you got to catch a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to go uh, actually have go work at a coffee shop with my wife together with no kids around. Dude, this isn't is, that this, awesome? This is amazing. This is like a holiday. So 20 minutes or so here. Um, what are we going to talk about, dude? Last night was pretty pretty uh, enjoyable time, something I haven't done in a long time. We stayed up, it was like 3.45 in the morning, yeah. talking about the possibility of non-physical uh, consciousness uh, time travel in the arrow of time, the possibility of interstellar travel. I mean, we had a poker night. Jeremy McClellan, the comedian who's been on the show, was here. Uh, Derek McGill and Cameron Soresby, our co-workers. Mitchell Earl, uh, who's going to be on the show soon to talk about a new book we have coming out. Uh, Jeff Till, who's been on the show, has a podcast. And, and, and Jeff Till was up debating with us all night about ghost in the machine, soul theories versus physicalist conceptions of the mind. It, it, it was, was like uh, college, crazy. like age 18, sort of. You know, I haven't <laughs> done that stuff. This is like your daily life. You do this every day. But I haven't stayed up till three something in the morning talking about this stuff in a long time. So, so what are your takes? Takeaways, anything? That, that's when the action starts at three in the morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, my, my takeaway is that the uh, the possibilities of philosophy are always enchanting, always enchanting. But you know what grinds my gears? Are, wait, wait, is this like a new segment you're introducing? I'm introducing a new segment. You so know what grinds my gears? Yeah, okay. for those of you who don't know, you got to go on YouTube right now and Google what grinds my gears, Family Guy, because there's always a segment where Peter just goes on this riff of what grinds my gears. And it's pretty funny because he just goes on these crazy, uh, a little bit too angry tangents. So I I suggested to Isaac yesterday that since we talked about me being angry at everyone last episode and just getting out our anger, I think it would be therapeutic if we did a version of, you know what grinds my gears. So I'm going to give us both a personal challenge right now. We each have to, right here on the spot without prep, identify one thing that makes us angry and I'm going to go ahead and take politics off the table, which I probably didn't even have to do with you because you're so bored with that topic. What's one thing that makes you angry? What grinds your gears? And let's talk about it for a few. Wait, so I have to go first? That gives me time to think. <laughs> yeah, come on. Oh. All right. Well, the first thing that comes to mind, this is completely like cheesy, small thing, but this totally grinds my gears. The letters H-A-H-A. Ha ha in like an email or Facebook, when it's not, if someone posts a joke and you type like LOL or haha, okay, you're acknowledging, I thought this was funny. Outside of that context, what the heck is with people adding haha to the end of an otherwise sensible statement or question? It makes it so weak and passive and like, I'm scared, I don't know if I actually think this. I get emails from people all the time. Hey Isaac, how's it going? Um, I really like to talk a little bit more about X, Y, and Z. Think it's really interesting, haha. And I'm like, 
Everything was fine until you, what are you, are you backing away? Are you, are you laughing at yourself? Are you nervous that we're talking? It's like the nervous laughter that you have in, in person when you're talking to someone, you're like, hey, it's really great to meet you. Ha ha ha. None of us like that. So email gives you the ability to not reveal that you're nervous. You get to hide that. Why would you type back in? Why would you put back in a bad habit that you get to avoid using the medium of email or Facebook? There's something about when I read that, I feel like this person has no confidence. They don't know if they even want to be asking me this. It drives me. It grinds my gears. <laughs> why do you think people do that? Like this, this, like you said, when we're on email, people have the opportunity to just... Uh, cover up the fact that they're ner nervous and just leave that out. Why do people do it in writing? Why do they say haha? Is it a way of softening up something or what's going on? Man, I have no idea. And I've only seen young people do this. So there's some maybe generational cultural experience that I'm not quite getting. Um, that's probably why it grinds my gears because I can't, I, I always look for like a rational explanation. What would it why would it be in this person's self-interest or their perceived self-interest to do this? Is there some strategy or even if it's subconscious that they think this is going to help or benefit them in some way or reduce their risk? I can't for the life of me make sense of this ha-ha thing. It just seems like bleeding a sense of like, I don't know if I want to be saying this. I don't, I don't want you to take me seriously. I'm scared. I don't know. I truly don't get it, TK. So don't ever write ha-ha <laughs> to me because it grinds my gears. All right, all right, your turn. All right, you know your what? Your turn, ha-ha. You know what grinds my gears, ha-ha? <laughs> Is Kevin Durant leaving the Warriors and everyone acting like it's the end of the NBA world. Like it's the worst thing that's happened since the beginning of the NBA when LeBron James joined a super team, what, six years ago, and no one seemed to have a problem with this. I know Cleveland fans were angry, but... And people were angry at him, but yeah. no one was like, the NBA is over. Yeah, people were angry at LeBron for leaving or the way in which he did it and the whole spectacle created around it. But this guy has been on stacked teams in a weak Eastern Conference for the past six years where there has been no suspense at the beginning of every season about who's going to be going to the NBA Finals. There has the been no Eastern Conference for like half a decade now, and no one has been concerned. Like mm. literally no legitimate teams but one in the East. Yeah, there have been no concerns about that. Like we all know at the beginning of the season that the Cavs are going to the Finals because it's LeBron and two other All-Stars and a bunch of weak teams. But once Durant goes to Golden State, now you know Adam Silver has to released this statement about how it's bad for the NBA and we need to be concerned about super teams and maybe we need to change the way we're doing things. And it's like, why is this concern about super teams now all of a sudden a new thing? Uh, the second thing about it is that what's so annoying is that Golden State gave up Festus Azili, Harrison Barnes, Andrew Borgett, Maurice Spates, and they have now gutted their team, significantly reduced their amount of depth in order to acquire Which this their, star. Their whole style this year has been their starters ne usually never play more than three quarters, more than 30 minutes, and they have a very deep rotation. That's been part of their success. So this is still to be determined whether in the long term, yes, when their starters are on the floor, it will be amazing unlike anything we've ever seen. But in the long term as a team, that yeah. maybe it will backfire. Like yeah. That's still to be determined. The 82-game season is a grind. 
and you need depth to get through that grind without taxing your starters and affecting you negatively uh, in the playoffs. They've significantly compromised that. They gave up all rim protection. They have no big men that we know of right now. So, like, yeah. And Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and they're a super team, but every time super teams have been formed, it's always been harder than what everyone has thought. And there are some instances in which this has failed. So it grinds my gears that people are so neglectful of the history of sports that when something like Kevin Durant happens, number one, they act as if it never happened before. And number two, in spite of the history, they act as if this guarantees the future. And we all know that this happened back in the hallowed halls of... How's my Bill Walton? Your Bill Walton's pretty decent. But it would probably be better if you did it like this a little bit. If you sort of... <laughs> elongated your words and begin to refer to people like the great coach John Wooden of UCLA. Hey, I like that. I heard that Mark Cuban said he disagreed with Adam Silver and he thinks that having the Warriors be villains is good for the NBA. Now, I like this for two reasons. One, I like that Mark Cuban's always just crazy and loves to say stuff and mm-hmm. that he's that he's saying, no, this is good for the NBA. It's not bad for the NBA. But two, I like that he all of a sudden did something that no, the Golden State has never been seen as a villain. They're not a villain team. Mm-hmm. And even after the Durant thing, people have talked about, is this bad for the NBA? Oh, is Durant weak for wanting to join an already good team? Is that bad for him? But I've heard nobody do that. So Cuban goes out there and says, oh, yeah, it's good to have a villain team in the NBA, as if it's already established that Golden State is playing the role of villain to, try to, to try to start that narrative and turn them into the bad guys from sort of like the darlings. <laughs> and, you know, he's got a team in the West, so anytime the Mavericks play, he'll get to play the David versus Goliath. We're playing the villains. I love it. Dude, that's awesome. All right, so speaking of villains, um, here's a question I'm, I'm interested in your take on, especially after you just finished reading Be Slightly Evil by uh, Vankatesh Rao. That's one thing you brought up, I think, the other week. Um is it ever useful to play the role of a villain? You, I know you use metaphors a lot and you talk about the power of narrative. Does it ever benefit someone to use a narrative in which they are the villain to perhaps either motivate themselves or gain a competitive strategy? Or is it always a bad thing to be cast in those terms? Oh, man. I think it's a hugely valuable thing. I mean, look, if you're doing something meaningful and interesting, you are somebody's villain, right? You don't have to be if everybody saw the world in a non-zero sum sort of abundance mindset, then theoretically you could be nobody's villain. And that would be rationally like correct. You don't have to be. It's not zero sum in my mind. But people don't think that way. The vast majority of us, the vast majority of the time. So if you're doing something that's at all successful, you are somebody's villain, at least for a snapshot in time. If I go and like right now. The fact that you are saying it's unfair that people are criticizing the NBA now and they didn't with LeBron, you're a villain to some LeBron fan somewhere Absolutely. or somebody who loves the Eastern Conference and thinks that the Celtics are just as good as the Spurs, you're their villain right now, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. To, to create, to voice something, that doesn't mean long term they're going to hold a grudge and this is some ongoing feud, but from something as small as in one moment for one reason to something more extended, everything about your life, the fact that you're at Praxis to somebody, you could be seen as a villain if what you're doing is a counter strategy to what they're doing. So if you're doing anything that has meaning at all, you should be somebody's villain at some point, at any given point, you are at least one person's villain in some sense. Doesn't mean they want to yeah. kill you, but but I love that. And I like knowing that and being aware of it. If you say, oh my gosh, but I don't want to be that. 
you're just going to be uninteresting and you're still going to be somebody's villain. You'll just be a, a villain who's a pandering, uninteresting person, right? Kind of like the shit test concept we talk about. But if you just say, yeah, I'm so, whose villain am I today? How many people will see me as the villain for doing this, for doing that? Mm. Who cares? Mm. That's fun. Let's do it. Let's embrace it. Let's be the villain. You know, you really yeah. want to see me be bad? Let me show you bad, you know? Oh, yeah. This is totally interesting. It reminds me, I, I did a Facebook live session recently and someone asked a question about FOMO. And one of the things I mentioned there is the the fear of missing out. You sounded really California when you said FOMO. You go, you go, yeah, I was doing this and somebody mentioned FOMO. Like that sketch you ever heard the California. Oh, I love this. Did you take the four or five? Like Sorry. take La Brea all the way down. Uh, <laughs> it, it was subconscious, man. It was a Californian slip. Yeah, a little fear of FOMO. Go ahead, Takah. So my my basic idea is always gets awkward when when you joke around when I'm trying to make a point because I I have to laugh or I'm gonna be the guy that's too serious you know but at the same time I don't want to laugh yeah I just want to make my point and I'm really angry but I'm forced to laugh I'm your villain right now (laughs) yeah you're my villain right now (laughs) okay sorry the Facebook live question about FOMO yeah so the thing about FOMO is that fear of missing out is rooted in the illusion that there's something you can do that would involve you not missing out on something very important. You know, every choice you make involves sacrificing the opportunity to not only do other things, but to also do other important things. You know, I, I always talk with, with people about like activism and, you know, people are always saying things like, well, should it more people involve, be involved in activism and trying to make the world a better place? Absolutely. But go ahead and pick what you're going to do. And then you have to deal with the fact that there are going to be like a hundred really important issues that you're going to have to neglect or not spend enough time on in order to be relevant to the thing you chose to fight for. And I, I think there's a similar kind of uh, lesson here when it comes to being a villain. The question, is it ever good you know, to be seen as a villain? It's kind of based on the assumption that it's possible for some people to avoid ever being seen as villains. The fact of the matter is you are going to be a villain, like you said. And given that fact, how can you make that concept work for you? How can you make being seen as a villain something that motivates you or furthers whatever your cause is? Do you think that it is damaging or detrimental to say, okay... I'm going to be somebody's villain no matter what. I can't let it bother me. In fact, I'm going to go out of my way to become someone's villain, even if I wouldn't normally. I'm going to try to offend. I'm going to try to play the villain. Do you think that that is like, okay, now you're messing things up. You're getting, it's self-destructive. It's counterproductive. Or do you think sometimes even that, like, you know what? Today I want to piss somebody off. People are being too nice to me. I want to create an enemy today. I want to, I want somebody to, to see me as a villain. Like, how, how far would you go? Yeah, this reminds me of the, you know, the the kid who's going to be different for the sake of being different. I'm not going to like what I really like because I want to be different and being different is cool. You know, I, I, I don't really think that works. You know, I heard Gary Vee talking about why he doesn't hedge. And he says, you know, he chooses basically to have a personality, to have conviction and say what he really thinks rather than try to win everyone over. And what he's discovered is that people are really willing to accept almost anything as long as they're convinced that that's the most sincere, authentic version of whatever it is they're looking at. But once you try to trick people into thinking you're something that you're not, they can smell the BS from a mile away. So I think it's one thing to say, look, I'm going to be perceived as a villain anyway. So it makes no sense to orient my life around choices, you know, 
um, that will help me avoid that. Or it makes no sense to go out of my way to avoid that. I'm just going to keep it real. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to say, oh, I'm going to try to be a villain and convince people. If, if, if that's not really who you are, you know, um, if, if, if you're not doing something that you truly believe in, you'll just look like a caricature. It actually reminds me of a point you were making about social entrepreneurship and, and how in order to be successful in entrepreneurship, you got to focus more on creating value in a profitable way. Um, and you have to let changing the world be the logical outworking of that rather than making your entire business plan around what's going to make the world a better place in some abstract sense. I think you lose when you go that route. We're launching an enterprise to change the world and we hope it's profitable. It's probably not going to do either uh, very well. Um, You know, it's funny. You make me think of a a C.S. Lewis quote. I don't know the exact quote. I'm paraphrasing. I don't even remember what book it's from. It could be from the Narnia series, but he says, Either, either the scariest or most dangerous, maybe both, but let's just say that the scariest, most dangerous things in the world are not goblins, witches, devils, whatever. They're things pretending to be something that they're not. Mm. And so a goblin isn't scary. A person, a goblin dressed up like a person is scary. A wolf isn't scary. A wolf in sheep's clothing, that's where the danger is. Uh, things pretending to be something that they're not, or even a human pretending to be a witch or whatever, a goblin. Um, I think that's really interesting. And I think yeah. I think you can see this, like sometimes I wish my personality was more evil and villainous because there, <laughs> there are some people who they're like really good at trolling or taking people off and like having fun with it. And it's clearly just who they are and they're not doing it in a disingenuous way. Um, and I almost like envy that, but that's, I'm not at that level, but sometimes I kind of want to be. And then you see people who are trying to be like trying to be a shock jock or trying to be a troll, but it's clearly like not who they are. There's some inner conflict there. They're not at peace with it. So, so like trying to appear as something other than you are is, I think one of the more sort of unattractive, unlovely things that there is. You guys might be able to hear my kids hollering and screaming (laughs) in the background, Hey, um, what's the actor's name who was in the movie Fargo? He plays a lot of weird, eccentric Billy characters. Billy Bob Thornton? No, no, not Billy Bob Thornton. He's the guy you actually referenced. There was a joke you made recently on Facebook where you played like... Buscemi? Steve Buscemi? Steve Oh, dude. Yeah. Uh, Love me some Steve Buscemi. Yeah, Steve Buscemi's a man, but, but it reminds me, there's this character you played in the film where he's hanging around... There, there's a whole uh, fan club, by the way, called Steve Buscemi is the Hottest Man Alive fan club. Is, I, it, is it on I, Facebook? And I actually think like people actually believe it because he owns who he is so much that I think it like makes him attractive <laughs> to people. I love anyway, that. go ahead. No, I love that. Well, it reminds me that, that there's a character you played in a movie who's trying to fit in a, around a bunch of teenagers and he has his little baseball cap on and he looks so awkward because he's trying to dress according to his concept of teenager. And he walks up to a group and he's like, uh, how do you do, fellow kids? And it's just the most awkward moment. And I think that's how everybody looks when they try to be something because they think it will work rather than because that's who they actually are. Hey, man. So uh, two minutes here. Anything else you want to you hit on real quick? Hmm. Anything else I want to hit on? Hey, how do you how are you liking Facebook Live? I keep making fun of yeah. you for doing these Facebook Live things, <laughs> and I get on there and I sort of like troll you and stuff. Um, are you liking it? Do you think it's a pretty cool platform? I love it, man. It, it provides a, a different way of interacting with family, friends, and a lot of people who like to follow my content. It's it's different from me just uploading you know, recording a video on my own and uploading it and saying, here, watch this when you have time. There's something about the lie factor about saying right here, right now, 
in this space. I'm going to share my current emotional state with you. I'm going to share with you what's currently on my mind. And it's not just about you seeing me. It's also about me seeing you see me. And th there's a, a, a greater sense of community and connection when you do Facebook Live. So you, yeah, get, you, you can't you, actually see people. We need to make this clear because yesterday Jeff Till said he was, <laughs> he was watching you on Facebook Live while he was, let's say, indisposed. And then he had this thought like, wait, can he see me as well? And he got scared, so he turned it off. You can't actually see other people on video, just to make that clear. It's funny because I speak like that too, right? So I'm like, yo, Jeff, I see you, man. I see you. And he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like an avatar see. Remember the movie Avatar? It's like, I see you, I get you. Yeah, you can actually see the names of everyone that's watching you. People can ask questions or make comments in real time. So it feels more like hanging out than giving a speech or just making a video. I love Facebook Live, and I plan on using it a lot more. Um, all right. Recommendations for this week? Recommendations for books. Oh, man. So I'm going to go with um, some philosophy here just because uh, last night we had a really long really long discussion well it's a little bit of philosophy a little bit of science it's a, it's a book that I actually just bought for Isaac it, it'll take you into some interesting spaces uh, it's called sex drugs and machine elves um, and it's a really awesome book a tour de force in everything from physics ethnobotany um, the philosophy of mine uh, and a host of other things check it out um, you know what I'm gonna go with a book that I think is probably the most important work in social sciences in, I don't know, like last decade, I don't want to put a time frame out, but like right now going today, and that is Anarchy Unbound by Peter Leeson. Mm. He's been on this show before to talk about his stuff, but his ability to apply rational choice theory and economic thinking to really bizarre and interesting epochs in history to help us sort of gain that intellectual humility to say, we don't have the explanation for everything and we can't say, oh, this this practice or this behavior looks weird, therefore it's stupid or irrational to back up and try to understand what's really going on. It is a powerful book with profound implications. In my mind, it is the death blow to all of the horrible ideas uh, stemming largely from Thomas Hobbes. I've always had a angry, uh, you know what grinds my gears? Thomas Hobbes, that's what. Um, Perfect. Ending. Anarchy Unbound by Peter Leeson. Yeah. That's it? That's it, man. I, I was hoping that you would just say, you know what grinds my gears? And then I would be like, Thomas, mother effing hot. <laughs> and then we'd end on that note. <laughs> well, now, now we lost that chance. So can, how can we have like a good ending now? <laughs> we wrap it up, man. We wrap it up. It, it, it's been good uh, doing this live. Maybe there will be more in the future. Who knows? But stay tuned for more what grinds our gears and anything else. Peace out from the beehive. Peace.